Welcome to the TransAsia and the World podcast. I'm Galen Poor, and I'm here with Philip Serapak. Hello. Hi, Philip. And today we're interviewing Lynn Lee. Hello, everyone. This is Lynn. Uh, Lynn is a PhD graduate student here at the University of Wisconsin Madison, and she studies sexual violence during World War II in Asia and the transnational uh, memory and redress movement after the war and the kind of the politics of that up to the contemporary day. So, Lynn, we're very happy to have you. Yeah, I'm glad to be here, too. Thank you okay. for inviting me. So the first question I wanted to ask you about is, what is the redress movement? When did it start? Where did it start? And what was the role of women in that movement? And what are they trying to redress? Just give us a little overview of like what happened that they're trying to address with the redress movement. Okay, so um, like I think most people probably have heard of the term quote quote comfort women. Um, and um, so according to existing studies, there was were probably 200,000 comfort women during the time of Japanese empire. Um, so basically those were women who were forced and deceived into sexual slavery um, to serve the Japanese soldiers. and. Of course, in addition to Coco Comfort Women, there were also other kinds of um, women of um, Japanese sexual violence um, survivors. Um, so actually, immediately after the World War II, the issue of Japanese sexual violence uh, was not directly addressed. Um, a lot of women uh, never revealed um, their experience of, of sexual slavery or sexual harassment to their relatives or friends. So for a relatively long period of time, this issue was really like like a taboo in but um in nineteen ninety one um so there was this um South Korean lady called Kim Hak Kim Haksam. So she actually became the first survivor of Japanese wartime sexual violence to come forward and um to to, to tell everyone what actually happened to her. So mm. um so Miss Kim Haksam she was forced into sexual slavery during um Japanese colonization of Korea. So after she she made a public charge against the Japanese government in nineteen ninety one. Oh um, sorry Lynn, can I slow you down for a second and oh, ask what okay. can you explain like what was the comfort was women system? Like how did it work? Oh okay. That yeah. Um so um it's I guess in short, it's just a system of sexual slavery sponsored by and, and managed by the Japanese wartime government. Mm. Um, so they would uh, force women into what they call comfort stations. And those women oftentimes would be given new names and sometimes Japanese names and would be forced to, to quote, quote, serve Japanese soldiers. The Japanese army had a very scientific and modern way of managing those sexual slaves. Um, for example, in order to make sure that they would not transmit sexual diseases to Japanese soldiers, those women were subject to uh, like routine uh, house screenings. Mm. Um, so, so, and also based on my preliminary research, so the Japanese soldiers they would receive like entry tickets to comfort stations, and like the amount of comfort, uh, the, the amount of entry tickets that a soldier can receive um, is related to like their ranks in the army. Yeah. So basically, like with the, the 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 ticket, you can enter the comfort station and and see a Coco Comfort Woman. So that's basically how it works. Is so that clear? it was like a formalized right system, right? right. And it's very official. like official, right? It's it's official. Although um, Japanese government 
does still deny a Japanese government involvement in the system. They mm. often claim that you know those women were willingly participant uh, prostitutes, but actually in reality, um, the majority of those women were really forced into this, and they were really not given any like like payment for for this kind of service. Hmm. So you were talking about Korean women who right. were like, t- but did it happen? Yes. All over? Yeah, that's a great question. Actually, it affected both East Asia and Southeast Asia. So, like, women from uh, China, Korea, the Philippines, Indonesia, East Timor, all those women, and not just Asian women, but also, like, white women who were living in Southeast Asia during Japanese colonization of Southeast Asia, um, they were also captured and forced into comfort women's system. And I just want to emphasize again, like comfort women system is just one part of Japanese wartime sexual violence because they also had um, other ways of uh, of um, subjugating women to Japanese sexual wartime sexual violence, including uh, what they call rape camps, which is actually quite common in rural China. So rural camp is. Sorry, am I going to too much no, details about? Yeah. So, like, rape camp is different from uh, comfort stations in the way that it's not as systematic. You do not have like a, a, a medical practitioner who would give those women a, reg- a regular uh, house screening, and like the soldiers also would not need to have an entrance ticket in order to 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 see those women. So, rape camp would be more like a form where women were just detained and just got da- like raped at a daily basis. Oh, man. So yeah. I just have a, a quick question. So you say that the Japanese government um, is kind of denying their involvement in this apparatus, if you will. Right. And yeah. so as, as a researcher, how are you able to then enter into finding, I guess, documents? So actually, one part of my research... Um, it's based on the accounts and the artworks and by the, the, the formal um, victims of the Japanese wartime sexual slavery system. So I was uh, lucky enough to have the opportunity to, to visit and um, it do interview with um, oh with, with, <laughs> with, with victims. Um, and also there's actually have been a lot of documentary as well as photo exhibitions dedicated to the survivors of w- Japanese wartime sexual violence. Um, and you can actually like do research on, on those um, visual materials as well. And also actually the, the, the Japanese wartime sexual violence is in no way a new topic. Um, many um, scholarship has been produced uh, since the 1990s. Um, so, so luckily, even though the Japanese government and a lot of right-wing groups in Japan have been consistently denying their involvement, in this um, sexual violence system, and they deny any kind of economic compensation and apology to the victims. Um, luckily, scholars still have um, sources to work on. Yeah, so doing uh, interview and photographs and those kind of alternative to the archives. Right, right, yeah. right, yes. Cool. Um, and museums, too. And museums. Right. Yeah, yeah, speaking of museums, like... Yes. Um, Oh no, we'll, we'll get to museums later okay. actually, because that's more of like contemporary looking right, back. Right. But um, I also wanted to know like how unusual this is, because when you right. study any kind of World War II history, you often hear about this from ev- not not the the comfort women systems, but mass rape and sexual True. violence True. happening from both like allied soldiers True. going into occupied Japan True. or occupied Germany, True. Um, and from uh, Japan. So, are you saying like what Japan was doing was something totally different than other powers were doing in World War Two? 
Yeah, thank you. That's actually a great um, question, and I have to admit that like I'm at the very early stage of my research, so that's actually a question that I really want to think through while I work on my dissertation. But I think one immediate response would be, although I cannot at this stage claim that the Japanese wartime sexual violence system is so unique that you cannot find anything comparable to it, but I do think there's something very novel about it in the way that it's really trying to use a more like modernized and scientific way to manage sex um, in human life. So actually some scholars working on this issue have applied Foucault's idea of biopolitics to the study of Japanese wartime sexual violence. So the, the basic idea of biopolitics is um, is that like the, the, the strategies and mechanisms through which human life um, are managed under regimes of authority. Um, so like we just talked about earlier, during the 20th century, Japan, they were able to use very advanced technology and medicine to design a system that makes sure that all those uh, women, uh, they were screened um, regularly. And there was a system to make sure that like the soldiers would not contract sexual diseases from being to contact with those women. So I, I do think the way that Japanese empire try to control their population sexual desire is very is something very modern and something very new that we only begin to see mm. um, in the twentieth century. And I mean, sorry, at this stage, I cannot maybe say more about it, but this yeah. is truly a question that I'm really interested in knowing more about. Yeah. And also, how the system Japanese wartime sexual violence actually intentionally mold Japanese soldiers' sexuality into a particular kind of sexuality is also one thing that I'm interested in studying because um, I don't think everyone is born to know how to rape or how to sexually harass other people. But I do think Japanese government, by using all kinds of ways to encourage or to mold the, the sexuality of the soldiers into a particular kind that's super masculine and very aggressive, that I think is also very interesting and worth studying. So, so do you think that there was any practices or like the way that Japan managed prostitution at home that affected how they set up the, the comfort woman system abroad? Because what you're describing sounds similar to the the logic behind legalizing prostitution that you could control STDs and right, right. Yeah. Um, that's a great question. I haven't done enough research on that, but uh, as people probably have heard of, like so after the opening up of Japanese ports to European merchants such as Yokohama and um, Kobe, they actually also came up with a system to to regulate sex. For example, they would designate an area that's only reserved for, for, for European merchants and they only allow um, like a particular group of Japanese prostitutes to serve those European merchants. So in a way, I, I do think there was attempts to um, regulate sex um, and making sure that like, like this, making sure that they can bring sexual um, transmission of sexual diseases um, to the to the lowest amount um, that, uh, that in Japan going on already. But I don't know exactly if that had a direct impact on how they regulate sex in their colonies. Oh, and I think it's worth mentioning that actually the first confiscation ever established was actually in Shanghai, China, because um, back then I think two major concerns. One is that they actually wanted to use confiscation as a way to decrease the 
the, uh, the number of rapes because there were a lot of uh, incidents of Japanese soldiers raping civilian women in Shanghai and they the Japanese soldiers uh, the Japanese um, officials also thought that wouldn't be good and was destabilized social um, order so they actually part of the reason that they claim is that by establishing confiscation they can actually um, decrease the number of, of rape of civilian women and the second reason as we mentioned repeatedly is to control transmission of sexual disease so just really quickly uh, in terms of context what what year was the uh, the first camp the sexual camp uh, in Shanghai w when was that um, I think it's in, in, in the 1920s. 1920s? Right. So so there's kind of a an evolution in terms of ideology with these sex camps that are kind of um, growing from the 1920s as the Japanese empire is, you know, growing into uh, World War II where it right. becomes kind of this mass, mechanized, um, kind of, as you say, modern um, institution. Right, right. So what happened to these women? after the war in different places. And how did national politics affect it differently? One thing you really draw, drew out in your talk was how this is really a transnational issue right. that affected people, you know, you talked about Korea and right. China, but even like Dutch women True. who in, True. in Southeast Asia. True. So what happened to all these women after the war ended? And how did the politics of all those different countries affect True. Um, thank you. So I think one thing that I would like to discuss in terms of the larger context um, following w the end of World War Two is the U.S. involvement in, in like the East Asia. Yeah. So um, actually, there's a great book that I re like to recommend on that topic. So uh, it is a book called Cold War Ruins by Lisa Yoneyama. So in that book, Professor uh, Yoneyama really um, like expand on how U.S alliance with Japan following World War II actually played a role in downplaying Japanese wartime sexual violence against women throughout Asia. Um, so Professor Yonayama's argument is that because the U.S. wanted to build Japan as like, you know, like, like a buffer state against all those communist and and enemy so during the trial of Jap Japanese wartime Christ um, US was actually going going what was quite lenient toward Japan mm. um, and also as everyone know like like being sexually harassed um, is often not considered a problem with the assault but the problem of the victim so actually women throughout Asia were not encouraged to talk about their experience and in places like Korea I think situations might have been better for the women because the government at least did not try to go very harsh on women who have been forced into serving Japanese soldiers. But in the case of um, China, I think that the situation was worse because during the, con the, the, the series of a series of political campaigns um, launched during the first two decades of mm -hmm. the Republic of China, um, the government actually trialed some women who were forced to, who were detained at either confiscations or rape camps. So, for example, one of the, the, the women that, um, I didn't get to interview her because she actually passed away um, in the 1960s, but I got to interview her daughter. So, so, so the, 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 the woman that I want to talk about, she's called Nang Pu, and she, Miss Nan, she was born into a rural family in Shanxi province. And um, in 1942, 
Japanese soldier invaded um, Shanxi province because there were there was a lot of coal mines in, in Shanxi province, and Japanese um, government really wanted to you know monopolize those, those those coal mines. So a lot of women across rural Shanxi province were actually uh, s- they actually suffered from uh, rape and also were detained at rape camps, and and so did Miss um, Nan. So she actually was repeatedly raped and forced to become the mistress of two different um, Japanese officials for a period of three years and during the during the period of which she gave birth to a boy but um the, the boy died soon after birth and in 1945 when Japanese soldier finally left uh, Miss Nan's village um like w- when we assumed that her life would become better right since the enemies yeah, sure. left um but unfortunately she was imprisoned for about a year for committing quote treason um, by, by the Chinese government, by, by local government more accurately, because um, like the, the villagers accused her of um, you know serving Japanese men and betraying your country during a time of you know in, like like war against Japan. Um, mm. So she was often forced to con- con- confess her quote crime and apologize for serving the enemy to the public. So she was really humiliated repeatedly. And also um, because of the, the repeated rape and, you know, like, like just torture by the Japanese soldiers, she also contracted a lot of diseases and also like she, she had PTSD as well. So she actually um, could not take all the torture anymore. So she con- committed suicide in 1967 when her daughter was only like a toddler. So as you can tell, Miss um, Nan's story it is not an exception. Actually, a lot of women in China were criticized by the the people of uh, you know from the same country by that they were accused of of treason um because of their involvement in Japanese wartime sexual violence even though they were not willing participant in any sense. Yeah, have you seen any um, details? Because I mean, it sounds just astonishing right. to be accused of treason. Right for being a sexual slave. So if right. you found any details of like the kind of language or justification right. people gave for right. to, to justify calling them a traitor, right. um, what was the thinking behind that? True. Um, so, and I also want just want to make sure that like all like like a, a lot of the examples that I am drawing from, and also I did research in is in rural China, where the the, uh, the idea about chastity uh, also tends to be like stronger, mm. and it's also like a smaller social network where if you had been raped by a Japanese soldier, pretty much everyone in the village knows about that. So after the 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 Japanese um, soldiers left. During uh, the first two decades of uh, of China, so when the government was trying to to trial people who had been in contact with the Japanese enemies, um, the the local villagers they would turn women into uh, they 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 would just accuse women of serving the, the Japanese soldier willingly. Like mm. I think for them, the idea of being raped doesn't seem to be that clear. Like it, it yeah. seems to me that a lot of villagers feel like did not realize they were victims until many years passed. Actually, this is what they told us too when we did archival, did oral um, interview with some of the villagers. They said that it took them a long time to realize that those women were actually victims because for a really long period of time, they saw those women as as a shame of the village because they, they served Japanese soldiers and they, 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 they destroyed the purity of the, of the village. So after World War II in China, were there other people that could have the mantle of victim? 
Uh, I mean, I know like, you know, in the 90s and up to today, it's very common to talk about Chinese people as victims uh, during World War II. But it sounds like uh, that idea wasn't available to everyone back then. So was there like a reluctance to claim the title of of victim at that time or what? That's actually a great question. So um, based on my preliminary research, actually the Chinese government is only willing to... uh, to emphasize uh, the, the, the issue of Koko Kongput women um, starting from the 1980s and 1990s when the Japanese government, oh, oh, when there were several attempts to revise textbooks in Japan um, and deny that, for example, the Nanjing massacre ever happened or denying that Kongput women system ever existed. It was only after then that the Chinese government um, began to really emphasize that, oh, a lot of women were forced into sexual slavery. Before 1980s, the Chinese government actually was not willing to this, to get into details of, of, of Japanese sexual violence against Chinese women. And and actually, I'm still trying to do research on why is that Chinese government is so reluctant to talk about. Like, um, I think in response to Gillen's question, it's not that they do not want to claim victimhood. Like, they, they often talk about, like, Japanese invasion of China as a national shame that we should never forget. So uh, actually, the, the the discussion of Chinese being victimized by Japan, it's it, it in China. But the, the sexual dimension is, is less emphasized. And I think that's very interesting. And I've been wondering if it's also because the Chinese government do not want to emphasize the fact that, like, you know, their women ha- has been raped or sexually assaulted by other men because um, it will be seen as like a shame. So that's a great question that I'm still trying to figure out. And actually, even in contemporary China, if you compare Chinese government to South Korean government, Chinese government is still not very eager to push the issue of, you know, like redress movement in regard in regarding Japanese wartime sexual violence. Oftentimes, when gender is discussed, women are kind of seen as um, kind of symbols of the nation. In terms of the ideology of the, the Communist Party of China, do they do they see this in terms of kind of insecurity, um, in terms of a fragility of the nation? It, yeah, is it like a mark of shame that those things go. happened yeah. in yeah. the past? Or why, why were they so reluctant to talk That's about it then? That's a great question, and I'm actually really trying to, to do research on but. The Chinese government's not only not uh, not only reluctant to to emphasize too much on on like the the, the how mu- how many Chinese women had been sexually uh, harassed by Japanese soldiers during the colonization period, and even in nowadays China, they are also not very willing to address the issue of sexual assault occurring. So I actually see a mm. continuity yeah. and um. I'm still trying to figure out what causes the drastic at, at difference in the attitudes you know, between Chinese and South Korean government. Because as you all know, like South Korean government has been very like, uh, although the previous go- uh, like president was not, but, but most of the South Korean president uh, w- were really like promoting the, the redress movement. Even back then, like in the oh, 50s oh, of or course 60s? Not. Sorry, sorry, like since, no? since the, the, the 1990s. Yeah. So you just see, I, I feel like it's interesting when you compare Chinese and, and the, the South Korea. Uh, it, there's very interesting difference. Although, if I'm allowed to add it now, I, yeah. I do notice there's more like interaction between Chinese and South Korean young people. Yeah. And especially this interesting phenomenon that Chinese, younger gen- generation of Chinese would 
consume a lot of materials produced by South Korean artists or movie makers or, or painters um, regarding the issue of, of, of Japanese wartime sexual violence. And, and Chinese young people actually engage a lot with those materials and they would often use those South Korean materials to criticize Japanese wartime sexual violence against Chinese women. Yeah. So I find that transnational um, interaction very interesting. Yeah. Yeah, okay, well, let, let's work up to that with going back into the redress movement. Okay. So this issue, it, at least in China and Korea, it was, like, not spoken about for a number of decades. So yes. can you continue say more about the how the redress movement grew out of that silence? Yes, so like I mentioned earlier, so in, in 1991, um, the first victim of, of um, Kung Fu women's system that came forward, um, uh, so so Lady Kim Hakson, she came forward and she told everyone what happened to her during um, the war time. And it was astonishing because she really broke the silence. Before yeah. that, no one ever came forward with their experience. And I think, like, I think very similar to the Me Too movement. It's really um, like, like, like a transmission. L- like when you see some, when you see one person came forward yeah. to, to confess what they have, experienced it actually encouraged more victims to come yeah. forward with their own accounts so so that's exactly happened in in with the case of japanese wartime sexual violence so after 1991 there were also women's in china and also in japan so korean korean japanese women so so like uh, korean women who were brought to japan oh, during yeah. the wartime and uh, they just stay in japan after the war so a lot of women actually came forward with their accounts in the early 1990s when when you see like a, a groups of women came forward and, and told people what happened and that was also the first time that I think the world got to know that oh so this there's actually a thing called comfort women system back then and um, in 2000 uh, in 2000 um, women's um, survivors um, of the Japanese um, wartime sexual violence especially the comfort women system they actually held like a convention in tokyo japan and they um they brought lawsuit against the japanese government so so that convention was really remarkable in the way that you see uh survivors from all across asia east asia and southeast asia they would like detailed what they experienced um during uh like like at the rape camps or at at the comfort stations and they would bring charge to the government so so um i think you you mentioned uh, you asked in your prompts that what real women played like i i really think the the it's the courage of those victims and survivors to come forward mm-hmm. and to tell what happened to them what yeah. they have been through it is is really what's pushing the the, the redress movement to, to keep going yeah. even though unfortunately most of the victims have already passed away by now but like they already left um a, a lot of both like oral history and also like interviews of them like, like like documentaries i think those are all sources that we can draw on in the future wow so it started with this one woman can yes, you say kim, her name again oh so um uh, kim hakson i kim think hakson. He, yes in 1991 yes. so after she told her story did did it spread to other countries too like yeah, talk about how it, the connection bet- between other countries since then. 
Okay. Um. So I am not a specialist on that topic. So what I know is we're limited. Um. But Kim Sakun, Kim Hakson is really seen as this symbolic figure in the redress movement yeah. as the first person to come forward. <laughs> and um. And her her story really inspired a lot of women. For example, earlier we talked about the story of Nang Arpu, who was born in rural Shanxi province. Several women who were um detained at a rape camp in Shanxi province. They actually learned about um. Uh, so 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 Miss um, Kim Hakson's confession in South Korea and those um, like women in rural Shanxi province they were really inspired and um, so actually several of them also came to Japan later to 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 tell people what happened to them in Shanxi province mm. so I um, even though I cannot give a detailed account of how King Miss Kim Sa-hung's confession facilitated a transnational movement in the 1990s um, just based on my, my personal um, interview I, I know a lot of women have heard of Kim Sang-hung's story and I think that's the first time they realize that this is something that you can actually talk about and this is actually a crime that you can sue Japanese government for which is like just like unbelievable in the past like how would you ever think about suing Japanese government yeah. for something happened like like uh, sorry a deck like 45 years ago yeah so how do you see this playing out today like how are people connecting with this history mm-hmm. more recently right because now a lot of the, like you said, a lot of the survivors of this have passed away or are right. very old. Right. So we're really moving almost entirely into just our memories or the stories that are passed on from that time. Right. Yeah, that's unfortunate. So I think uh, there, are, there are several mediums of transnational interaction that I have seen. So first is um, NGO groups that have been supporting the victims um, throughout uh, Asia. For example, I personally know two groups in China, uh, sorry, in Japan. One is called HainanNet. So HainanNet, they, they, they are, are like a non, uh, NGO group formed in, in Japan, but they have been consistently providing both medical and financial and legal support to victims living in rural Hainan Island. And luckily, there are still um, three, what we call like apu, which means grandma in Chinese, is more like a more affectionate way of addressing older women. So like the, the three apples, they are still alive in Hainan Island. And actually Hainan Net, they, always, they, they visit those apples at least uh, one time a year and sometimes twice a year. And also like I like the group that I participate in, it, um, they actually, a group of Japanese people, they have been going to Shanxi province to visit the, the, the victims for 20 years. Even wow. after the victim pass away they still go there every summer to visit the family members of the victim in order to tell them that like we haven't forgotten you and Mm. even though your mothers have passed away we really want to carry on their their will and we will continue fighting against the Japanese government until we receive a formal apology so that's one medium so through like um, like transnational NGO groups and secondly what I see is um, it's through like annual conferences Um, for example there's a conference called Asian Solidarity Conference so the past one happened in, in Seoul, South Korea this March. So it is actually, um, so as the name, uh, the name is quite self-evident. So Asian Solidarity Conference, they actually invite attendants and representatives from many countries, including China, the Philippines, um, Indonesia, Japan, East Timor, Taiwan, Australia, New Zealand, Germany, the U.S., and also the Korea to to um to 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 discuss how can we continue pushing um the the, the issue of Japanese wartime sexual violence. How can 
can we truly bring um, justice to those survivors? So, so conference is an, another way that I see transnational interaction. And certainly, like I earlier I mentioned, there's actually a lot of art projects, uh, mostly photo exhibition, that focus on the lives of the, the survivors across Asia. Um, so actually, so for example, one famous um, project is called the, the, the Chong Chong Project um, that's established by a South Korean photographer. So since um, 1996, he has been taking photos of the, the survivors and um, documenting their lives. A lot of those um, women, uh, the survivors are actually living in extreme poverty, struggling with um, a lot of health diseases. So so, so the, the all those um, photo um, will actually show you the depict the, the life of the survivors and the, the photo exhibitions are actually um, they actually went to many countries I think in 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 North America as well to tell people what happened Wow has the traders the status that the Chinese government put on to those women back right. in the past been reversed like has there been any recognition of that mm. That's a great question. Based on what I know, there's no like formal apology or like yeah. re removal of the name. So it just kind of yeah. And, and of course, um, not all women who was in who was forced into like sexual slavery were were, were trialed. Um, mm. but uh, for those women who did got uh, get trialed, I don't think they ever re uh, like receive a formal apology. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting because I went to the the Nanjing Massacre oh, Museum, right, right. and there they actually have like a, a big section of the museum right. is showcasing this issue right. of, of women who were raped and they show their photos with right. big pictures and right. they have interviews with them right. from you know right. recently telling their story right. so i definitely got the sense that True. like times have changed True. and uh, uh at least like in this museum they're talking right. about it in a totally different way so i think if i um so i i it, i would like to apologize if i give like the listeners a, a miss impression that in China is completely a forbidden topic. So it's not. So yeah, you, you yeah, definitely yeah. can talk about Japanese wartime sexual violence. And as Galen pointed out, there are actually, as far as I know, I think two major museums in China right now dedicated to comfort women. Oh, Kuku really? Comfort women. So one is in Nanjing. So it's separate from the, the famous um, museum that Galen just uh, mentioned. So I, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a museum that's actually... It's a museum. I uh, it's called Li Ji Xiang. So Xiang means alley. So Li Ji Alley, formal comfort station memorial hall, or the name might not be exactly the same, but something like that. So if you go to Nanjing, I would highly recommend you to visit that place as well, because it's um like 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 ba uh, it's it's actually in like a formal comfort station, and it, it just dedicated the, the whole memorial to the the, the life of and the experience of formal comfort women. And also in Shanghai, they newly built a like a museum that's dedicated to comfort women. Yeah. So those are the two major museums in China. And there are museums in, in Taiwan as well, in South Korea and Japan. It's not that like the in China it's like a taboo topic. You can definitely talk about it and actually to the, the past summer in 2017 um, one documentary that's dedicated to the life of um, comfort women actually became like a box office hit in China the documentary is called 22 um, oh, wow because heard of that. yeah because um, because only 22 uh, survivors are still alive when the documentary was made so it's called okay. 22 but right now it's less than 22 because a lot of them passed away yeah. before the movie um, was released so so in China it's not like you are not allowed to talk about it but I do think the government is not worried 
active, p- not playing an active role in sure. like helping those women. And also, like a lot of women live in extreme poverty, and they had a lot of health issues from um, all those years sexual violence. But there was not really any kind of financial or medical aid given to those survivors. Yeah. So in that sense, um, I guess I was being more critical of the Chinese government. Yeah. Okay. Uh, one one final question. Okay. Because this is. Like the you're really bringing this out an issue between China and Japan. Right. In that aspect of it, it'd be really easy to kind of take the this history and turn it into just a political competition, you know, between the country of China and the country、right. of Japan. Whereas there's another aspect of bringing up this issue up to talk about sexual violence in general. Right. Yes. Wh- do you do you feel like which which way is it going when you see contemporary discussions? You know. Yes. Is it just a way for people to attack each other, or is it really to bring up like issues of sexual violence? Yeah. Thank you for the great question. Because actually, one thing that really bothers me and a lot of my friends and activists is that the the pain and all the torture, the humiliation, and the 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 suffering those women receive are often only used by by nation states as a stake against other nations. So I often see how how women's of、um, Japanese wartime sexual violence are used by their state. Their states, not not really for the benefit of those women. So、yeah. that's really enraging, and、um, I was really, really, really excited and thrilled when I learned that this year's Nobel Peace Prize was awarded to a surgeon and、um, and also like who who always help who has been helping like、uh, like victims of again rape、um, yeah. for for decades, and also a, a, another recipient this year is a former sexual slave by ISIS. So when I read that th- this award was given to to those two people, I was really, really morally encouraged.、Mm. And actually, one really interesting fact is that the surgeon so the surgeon did a Really famous museum called Women's Active Museum on War and Peace, located、uh, in Tokyo.、Um, so that museum is, is actually dedicated to survivors of Japanese wartime sexual violence. So he actually visited there, and he in interview he said that he was really astonished by all the crimes Japanese government committed against all the Asian women, and he's very. You know, like just just admire all the courage those women su- survivors had、um, in in fighting against Japanese government. So when I read that interview, I was really, really, really,、um, I guess, touched. I really see this transnational and transhistorical connection. So like like a, a contemporary fighter against sexual violence is speaking to something happened like decades ago. Yeah. And that that I think that the meaning why we should keep fighting for those victims.、Um, Yes, and I、uh, and I、uh, um if I'm allowed to, I know we're running no, out of time. No, go ahead. Because I I actually do think one thing that really bothers me is, is a hierarchy um within the redress movement. So even though we talk about all the transnational connection emerge in the past twenty years, I do not want to paint it. You know, like offer like a word rosy. Picture of the redress movement because I do notice that South Korean and Chinese victims are often given more attention to than、uh, victims in, for example, North Korea and victims in Southeast Asia. And I understand why it is why things happen like that because why is that? Oh, because I I do feel like a lot of times women from a more economically and politically developed kind of quote unquote developed country tend to receive more attention. Um, then women from quote-unquote less developed places, and but I feel like it's important for scholars and activists when we address this issue, we 
be careful not to reproduce the existing hierarchy between nations, and we do not apply the hierarchy upon those victims. Because I think that's really cruel if we 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 use that nationalistic logic and think some somehow women from certain countries get to become the representatives of the Japanese wartime sexual violence, while other women are really ignored. So I do feel like moving forward, um, it's important for us to really develop. Like a curiosity and emphasis for women in other countries, and not just、um, about the issue of Japanese wartime sexual violence. Like you both pointed out, there are many things going on in today's world. There are many women survivor,、um, many many women still、um, suffer from、um, wartime sexual violence in the world.、Um, so I think it's really important that we. Do not just fo- like limit ourselves to to Japanese Empire, but also look at、um, what's happening in today's world and trying to make a connection between wartime sexual violence in general. So, so one thing I was really touched when I visited the the, the Comfort Women Museum in Seoul, South Korea, is that at the end of the exhibition, they had a section that. Specify what South Korean soldier did to Vietnamese women during Vietnam War. They 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 said it's really horrible, like how many South Korean soldiers tortured and raped Vietnamese women and never apologized. When I read that, I was really really touched. I think that is the meaning of the redress movement. It's not just like we criticize. Like country that's not、uh, like like for example like I'm Chinese so I I criticize Japan but like I do not reflect on the problem Chinese government might has、mm. but I feel like when I saw that I really realized it's important to to re- really go beyond your own um national identity yeah um and and to really redress all the injustice that your country might have also committed against women from other country.、Mm. Yeah, this is a really important topic, and thanks for sharing with us. Yeah,、today. thank you so much for having me. 